Hello and welcome to Almanac, the Oxford Middle East podcast. My name is Matthew Smith. On today's pod, Charles O and I interview Eugene Rogan, Paul Tresh, and Marilyn Booth about Albert Harani and his impact on Oxford and the field of Middle Eastern studies. A note before we begin, during the recording we had technical difficulties and unfortunately lost Eugene Rogan's original audio, so his contributions to the discussion were recorded at a later date and can be heard at the end of this episode. So today we are joined by Marilyn Booth, professor of the contemporary Arab world at Malden College here at Oxford. Dr. Paul Dresch, former research fellow in social anthropology at St. John's College. And Professor Eugene Rogan, um, professor of modern Middle East history at St. Anthony's College. Today we're going to talk about Albert Harani. And luckily we have two of his DPhil students. And from what I've heard, one of his biggest fans. <laughs> to talk about it. So let's just kick it right off um, to you two, Marilyn and Paul. Tell us a little bit about what Albert was like as a teacher, as a scholar, as a professional colleague, from what you remember. Well, um, it was a great privilege to work with Albert. And as he knew at the time, I wasn't always sure that I was going to see it through and finish my dissertation. And I think the fact that I did finish it is due to quite a large extent um, to Albert's encouragement. Um, he was he was an amazing teacher. Um, I'm not the first to say this, of course, but he had a way of being very gentle and very encouraging, but at the same time, very compelling. And, and I don't want to say he wasn't, he was never, never frightening at all, always very encouraging. But um, he had a way of speaking, which which as gentle as it was, one knew to take extremely seriously. So his critiques were always phrased in a very positive way, but they really cut to the quick. Um, And I learned so much from him as a student and and certainly intellectually, but I think also as a teacher. Um, I'm also not the first to say this, that, you know, as one of the Auled Albert, I try to emulate him in my teaching, but I can never come up to that model in any way. Hmm. But I think his, his kindness is something that I definitely always keep in mind and try to emulate as much as I can as a teacher. Yes, I fully agree. He was a very kind man and very conscientious, uh, a very good supervisor. So as Marilyn said, he looked after people when they were feeling wobbly, which I don't think I ever did, but I could see people around me wobbling quite badly. And just very supportive. But he never impressed his views directly on anybody. Mm -hmm. Never told you what to do. Mm -hmm. And I think it was Matt, you asked me in the preliminary questions, you said, um, you know, what were his passions? Well, his great passion was clarity. And he wrote a really excellent Mandarin prose. He would read draft chapters very, very carefully. And his criticism was always at the level of the prose. Mm -hmm. What do you mean? Is Mm -hmm. this really what the word you want? Are you sure you want to say that? Mm -hmm. Very kind, very supportive, but very astute. Mm -hmm. And of course, he was immensely widely read. And his style, you know, he wanted to push you in a certain direction. It was rather, well, I I suppose you've probably read so-and-so. Well, of course, you hadn't. But you wrote it down and rushed off and made sure you read it by next time. Always little nudges, very kindly man. And um, yeah, as Marilyn said, he was an inspiration. I mean, there are some of us who've wasted our entire lives trying to emulate Albert, uh, you know, looking after students. And he did have a reputation of never letting down a student. 
-hmm. I think that's the most important thing. Can I just add one example? I remember um, those tutorials with him, especially my first year when I was still kind of finding my way. And I would walk up, I was here at St. Anthony's and I would walk up the Woodstock Road you know, looking forward to the tutorial, but also somewhat um, nervous and and also just feeling all the self-doubts that one can so easily feel, I think, as a as a young academic. And after the tutorial, I would come bouncing back down the Woodstock Road, my usually my arms full of books that he had loaned to me. And again, very much this, well, you may have read this, but in case you haven't, have a look at it, you know, and just feeling like this was the best possible place to be in the world. So he, he did have a way of being very encouraging and inspiring. I had a bit of a question connected to that as well. Um, Albert's sort of kindness and not impressing his opinions directly on you. And I know uh, Roger Owen has mentioned how he doesn't think that there's an identifiable Harani school of thought in, you know, in a, there being a cohesive set of ideas or approaches towards the Middle East, but in the sense that he had his approach to Middle East studies and bringing together a wide range of scholars from different universities and from the Middle East itself. Do you think that's been his greatest legacy directly on his students? I, I think there are two things. One, he wrote an excellent Mandarin prose, mm. and that's what he encouraged everyone to do if they could manage. So clarity. Yeah. Clarity and calm exposition. That really characterised Albert's style. And then all these connections, introducing people to one another. And I remember it must have been the late 80s. There was a conference at MIT, so I suppose Philip Cordy probably organised it. And it was the usual academic nonsense of 14, 15 people around a table. And somebody, poli history, whatever, started the old thing about, oh, the Middle East is characterised by patronage, which I think is a daft idea. And I, I, I lost my patience, and I said, well, why don't we go around the table and say why we're all here? And of course, the reason we were there, all but two of us, were Albert students. He put people together and he was very good at spotting interesting young people and passing them on to somebody a bit older to say, look, you might find this person interesting. And I think Albert built the subject through a lot of letters of recommendation, letters of introduction. So there's an Albert school, um, not in the sense of an ideology or a method, but a certain style and a certain set of connections which actually is rather important. And you know, people ask, well, what was his influence on Middle East studies, modern Middle East studies? And the answer is he invented it yeah. <laughs> you know, institutionally by introducing people to one another. And he himself was immensely widely read, but he really had a knack of spotting, mm -hmm. oh, you might be interested to meet this older person, you might be interested to meet this younger person. So you didn't feel you were in a hierarchy, you just felt you were meeting people you wouldn't otherwise have met. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree completely with that. And, and I certainly benefited from that, from the people he um, put me in touch with through the years. I think one thing about Albert is he really, he really loved people. And he was fascinated by people. And I think you can see that both in the way that he kind of brought people together, but also in his work. Um, and it's really interesting that you know, as he was getting towards the end of his career, and even before that, I mean, history was moving away from 
the sort of intellectual history focus on individuals and moving more towards, you know, various other kinds of ways of doing ways of doing history. Um, but I think in a way, in some ways it has swung back, although not in the same way. But I think, you know, there's now such an interest in people as there should be, as there must always be um, at the core of, I think, historical study, mm-hmm. you know, micro history and biography. And we still have in modern Middle East studies, we have such a need for good biographies mm-hmm. um, and good, good intellectual studies of bodies of work of individuals. And so I think in his emphasis on that, um, we may be studying other individuals now. I mean, my work very much looks at the people who were not well known, whereas, of course, you know, Albert focused on the very well known people, but they were also, also all part of the same network. And I think that 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 was one emphasis we had that was that was quite important. So both in terms of the networks he created and the way he put people together, um, but also in a certain approach to valuing the study of the individual and trying to think through that. Yeah, two, two things to take up there, perhaps. And one is that the emphasis on intellectual history of a kind never did die out, mm-hmm. die out in, in other areas. You think of people like Anthony Pagden or, you know, Pocock or whoever in, in, in Western European historiography. So I don't think that ever died. Arabic thought in the liberal age, it's easy to make it seem more a period piece than it really was. Mm-hmm. If you put it next to Pagden or something, yeah. it looks quite bright and lively. Sure. Um, yeah. The other thing I'd love to know about, I fully agree, Marilyn, that he had an interest in people. I would love to know what he grew up reading. I mean, I'm sure we're going to talk about intellectual precursors, Gibbons, so on and so forth. But, but what, what did you read apart from that? You often got the sense that he must have read the whole of Balzac, Anatole mm-hmm. France, you know, all these kind of guys. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But he certainly did read a lot of modern novels. Mm-hmm. You know, he mm-hmm. put me on to Alison Lurie, for example. Yeah. I remember yeah, that. Yeah, he did. So this reading beyond the Middle East, the sort of humane modern culture, mm-hmm. I think, was very important. Mm-hmm. And again, it does turn on an interest in people. Mm-hmm. What makes them tick? Yeah, <clears throat> absolutely. It'd be very interesting as well to know, probably impossible now, but mm. what sort of influence he had. His pre- it was Presbyterian upbringing I think mm. he had, what mm. that would have had on, you know, what he was reading and mm. like, mm. you know, the different uh, different authors and stuff. It would be very interesting, of course, to look at his brothers, wouldn't it? I mean, George yeah. Alani we know about because he did Middle Eastern things, but Cecil yeah. less. But it was obviously a family of really rather learned, intelligent, yes. well-read people. Yeah. And George Harani's stuff is well worth dusting off. There's a, a lot of good stuff in there. Mm-hmm. Was he uh, Borgiba's advisor? Was that, was that Cecil? Which one oh, was it? Was, was that I'm not sure. Cecil or George? I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, they're all up to their necks. Yes. Yeah. 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 So you sort of opened the door, Paul. Um, if you want to talk a little more about the academic uh, precursors <laughs> to Albert mm-hmm. and um, Marilyn, if you want to add anything as well, obviously, I know it directs the question of Paul, but this is yeah. really all about, about both of you and what you know. Right. Precursors. Somebody I do remember him mentioning very favorably many times over the years I knew him was Toynbee. Mm-hmm. Now he knew what was wrong with Toynbee as well as anybody else did, but 
many times he mentioned Toynbee as somebody worth thinking about, and somebody who deserved more thought than he was getting mm-hmm. post-World War II. I think that was an influence. And he comes back to it in that late piece you gave me, yes. looking at how do you yeah. write Arab history, mm-hmm. how do you write Middle Eastern history. Yeah, Toynbee pops up again there. The point being that history is not just what was Albert called it a miscellany of facts, or another way, you know, one damn thing after the other. There has to be a point to it, there has to be a shape to it. And the more immediate influence, I suppose, is Gibb. And that collection of Gibb's essays, well, there's first of all his, his stuff on modern Islamic thought, which is a lot closer to Arabic thought in the, middle, in, in the modern age than people seem to realise, but also that collection of Gibbs essays that Princeton put together, Essays on the Civilization of Islam, I think it was called. And you look at some of the motifs in there, not just intellectual, but how to organize intellectual life. And Gibbs pointing out how difficult it is to train, let's say, historians at the Middle East, because universities were used to the idea of somebody doing a history degree, and then turning around and saying, well, I need another four years to get started on Arabic, just didn't fit. So Gibb was arguing with how do you train people? And whether in that essay or another one, I've forgotten, um, very insistent, we have to get students from the Arab world into Western institutions so they can see how, how we're doing things, just as we need to get our young people over there to learn how they do it. So Gibb, I think, is, is probably not just a matter of liking some of his books and essays. There's probably a bit of an institutional inspiration there what needs doing wasn't wasn't harani going to actually collaborate with gib on on the final stage of the the sort of give and bound i I remember hearing that somewhere so i think there there was a quite i heard that close um close link there um for sure um and yes absolutely i think it's it's just really important to um to underline what paul just said about wanting um, to get students from the Arab world into, and this was another part of his network. Mm-hmm. You know, it was really to be mm-hmm. a global network. Um, he was also always very keen to follow French scholarship. Yep. And I remember he would he would suggest to me, you know, knowing that I read French, I mean, he would say, have you read this? Have you read that? Um, you know, we Anglophone scholars must not ignore what the French mm-hmm. scholars are mm-hmm. doing. So he was very, um, very global in his kind of yeah, academic politics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you both remember the culture of the Middle East Center being like when you both were Depot students? What was happening around here? What other scholars were milling about with Albert? Well, I mean, I guess I think more of what what was the student culture like, mm-hmm. but also that it was St. Anthony's and the Middle East Center was a much smaller place then than it is now. And so you really did mix with um, with the other fellows um, of the center. And so I was also co-supervised by Mustafa Bedoui. And I worked quite a bit informally with Robert... Um, Mabro. Mabro. Sorry, just, it just went out of my head. Because Robert Mabro, as an Alexandrian native, mm-hmm. was fascinated by the work that I was doing on another Alexandrian native, a, a poet that I ended up writing my dissertation on. So, um, so there was a, a really quite very nice informal way in which people did mix. And here we are sitting in what is now the boardroom. Um, it used to be the, you know, the Middle East Center seminar room. And in this room, I had my, I did my very first academic talk ever as a graduate student. And I remember I was very, very nervous, but um, it went well. And part of the reason I think is that the fellows were just 
so welcoming. I mean, you know, Albert really set a tone, but others Mm -hmm. were that way too. So, you know, I remember it was a very positive atmosphere. Well, I I didn't have much to do with the Middle East century as such. So I was an anthropologist just around the corner. Worse than that, I was interested in Yemen, which (laughs) (laughs) Albert used to characterize, um, well, the charmingly is, uh, yes, uh, part of the other Middle East. (laughs) The the real Middle East, obviously, being Cairo, Baghdad, Damascus, (laughs) and then in the 19th century, Lebanon. And then there were this riffraff out on the margin somewhere. So not a lot of direct influence there, really. Yeah, Middle East Centre is more a small number of students. I mean, Marilyn and I were both young and feckless, and um, Albert put us in touch. We, yeah. we used to hang out, didn't we? We, we did hang out, people. yes, absolutely, <laughs> and here we still are. <laughs> but yeah, look, the Middle East Centre was not an intimidating at all. I, mean, no. I think Marilyn's right, Albert did set a tone. Yeah. Civility, politeness, you know, helping people, very kindly. Never pulled rank. <laughs> you, know, he, you, you never had him say, well, I am the great panjandrum and everybody should listen. Absolutely. Absolutely not. not. Very, very quiet, modest. Very retiring. Yeah. And his virtue shone through. You know? It was just there. Oh, we had a lovely story. God, I forget where he got this one from. Was it the Druze or some bunch of people at the back end of Lebanon somewhere? <clears throat> and he told the story of somebody going in and, and Having explained to them that, of course, what they did in such circumstances was to, to talk to the um, the most good man alive. And he said, well, how do you know who that is? And I said, well, it's him in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> it was a bit like that. Everybody knew. Um, yes. You didn't have to wear a special hat or anything. You, there you were. So, yes, yes, he was good. Um, yeah, uh, talking about earlier about um, his influences... Um, and, you know, the role of Gibb and Toynbee and things. Mm. Um, one thing that's struck me quite a lot is, and I think you touched a bit on this as well earlier, Marilyn, about, um, you know, he had a bit of a aversion to more sort of impersonal takes on history, which, you know, stress, you know, like economics or big like social movements and stuff mm. rather than focusing on people. And I think he had one thing that's come out as well is, he seemed to have quite a strong idea of historical truth and his, like a facts in history, which I think maybe wasn't wasn't so popular, maybe towards the end of his career anyway. Now, if you had any ideas, well, on not that. really, because I think you know, as Paul's already said, I mean, Albert was absolutely not dogmatic in any yeah. way. I mean, yeah. he was the opposite of that, and so I don't think. I would say maybe a maybe a, a sort of a value placed on sincerity, I think I would mm-hmm. say, rather than mm-hmm. rather than truth with a big with a capital T. In the way that one worked and in the way that one read the, the works of other people. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so I mean, we could spend all afternoon hacking around the philosophy of it, but he did not have a naive idea of fact. Mm-hmm. Not at all. Yeah, the idea that you'd go out and sort of pick up facts like nuggets of rock. I mean he, he he would have smirked at it if he ever did smirk. No, he's a very sophisticated person. And uh, whatever that little essay was you gave me, it was in Itchmess, was it, 1991? Yeah, 91, I think. I'm sorry, I I read that in an awful hurry this morning. Yes, he ends up playing off um, sort of impersonal forces, power, wealth, and so forth, against the importance of the individual. But he's not coming down on one side or the other, and he really Mm. is arguing for a sophisticated view of... 
not just history as a subject, but of human activity. Mm. And separating individual and society is a split we normally don't need to make. And, and mm. when we do make it, usually we're being clumsy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so Albert, I, th I think, was a, a quiet, almost self-effacing person, but really a very sophisticated mm -hmm. character. Mm -hmm. yeah. And a lot of these questions, if you prodded him hard enough, he would have pointed out that they were false oppositions. And what about this scandal of continuity issue mm. with, um, you know, talking about Gibbs' influence, the sort of generation that Gibb belonged to, mm. it was more towards firstly stressing the Islamic nature of the civil, sort of like the civilization in the Middle East, and then subsequently talking, stressing how much things changed in the 19th century and 20th century. Harani realized they knew that as well. Um, but he did have, from when he wrote Arabic thought, which maybe was more influenced by Gibb at mm -hmm. that period, mm -hmm. you know, he then later on thought that he stressed how things changed, the European influences on mm -hmm. the thought in the 19th century, maybe a little too much, mm -hmm. and didn't actually look at how the continuity of the ways of writing mm -hmm. and the school of thought in the Middle East at that time. Is this a problem or a problem? Uh, an issue that you've come up with in your work well, as well? Well, uh, on Albert's end of the thing, and remember there are various little essays here and there, you know, the Arab notables and that volume mm. he did with Stern on the, the Islamic city. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, influenced by they, Max Weber. Very, a lot yeah. of Max Weber. Mm. But his contribution there is very balanced, and he really is quite careful. There are yes. some things that yeah. come up again and again and again over hundreds of hundreds of years, and there are other things, well, you know, that seems to date to 1832 or something. Uh, so I don't think he was ever naive about that. No, no. But yes, Arabic thought in the liberal age was dealing with a very specific period, a very specific set of people who, let's not forget, were almost unknown to a Western audience. <laughs> Nobody had heard of them. And then his, his last one, the big fat book on, on the history of the Arabs, it was doing a very different job in a very different mode. And I think if we try to play off the two ends, the thing to remember is there are lots of little bits in the middle mm. where he doesn't fall off the beam. I mean, he, he keeps his balance. I think part of that, too, we were talking earlier about his about Albert as a reader. And what did he read? Mm. Um, he was a very incisive and sensitive analyst of texts, the way he read texts. Um, and so this is another way in which he was a very sophisticated um, thinker and and where um, you know I mean I ended up working on somebody who's classed as a literary figure and yet I was approaching it as intellectual history and I think he he recognized that these were kind of false boundaries and I, I think the practical thing of continuity what I certainly ended up with and I ended up working on things where it was forced on you. That was mm. just how the sources were. I think the only answer is you have to look. <laughs> it's, it's not an empiricist question, but it's an empirical question. Yeah. You have mm. to look. Well, if you know they've been laying out towns this way for however many centuries, well, prove it. Give me some sources. And if they haven't, well, let's have some evidence. I don't think we can go around splashing broad brushstrokes on things yeah. and say, you know, Iran is more continuous than Iraq or whatever. Mm -hmm. yeah. It depends what you're looking at. But the fact of continuity is very, very important, you know, mm -hmm. where things do stick. And of course, it happens all over the place. And even places that pride themselves on their modernity, you know, mm -hmm. modern European history. 
you've got to scratch the surface and, and you're offered into something that a, a medievalist can recognize. Big thing, it's all new, push the frontier and all the rest of it. Well, okay, if it's all changing so fast, why does the top deal still ring a bell? <laughs> why does it appear to be present there? You have to look. You have to look. And Albert was always very careful to look. And mm-hmm. Again, the stuff on, on cities would be a good place to see him doing that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marilyn, if I can come to you first with this question. Obviously, we're almost three generations on of scholars since Albert now. Good I guess God. Charlie and I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Charlie and I. Can... Feel very old. <laughs> Speaking as old. <laughs> Charlie and I are probably on generation, yeah, like we're generation four, I would say. Yes. How do you, who are some of the great scholars you think that have succeeded, Albert Harani? And then if well, I can ask you. You, you mean start... apart from our students? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you want to give some personal shout outs to some of your former <laughs> students, absolutely. And if I can ask you to speculate a little, what do you think Albert would think of the field today? Okay, I'm not going to mention any individual scholars because I think what is important is to look at the range of work that is going on and the way that um, both the kinds of emphases and foci that that Albert took in his work and then many, many others are now such a part of the field. And, you know, as Paul was saying earlier, I mean, this was talking about how Albert actually helped to form a field. It's easy to forget how new the field of modern Middle East history is. And so I think to look now at the proliferation, the the really amazing kinds of work Mm -hmm. that are going on and to sort of try to trace those back is, um, is a rewarding thing to do, but one has to also just appreciate the diversity of work. Um, what would he think? I think he would. I think he would, by and large, um, be very pleased. Um, I think that the way that some of us are trying to work on networks as well, and on individuals and, and bodies of work, but we're trying to look kind of beyond those better known people and the people he wrote about. I mean, as Paul said, they weren't necessarily known. To, um, to, to students when, when Albert was writing about them, but certainly in their own time, they were very well known. So I think some of us are trying to, to move away from that and to, um, to sort of look elsewhere as, as Albert himself, I think, was beginning to do towards, towards the end of his career. So I think he would appreciate the, the different ways that people are approaching certainly approaching intellectual history, the way that we can think in very nuanced ways about, as he did, about the various modes of transmission, the way that the complicated ways in which ideas and people travel. Rather than mentioning any particular work, I would just say that I think in general, there's, mm-hmm. there's been a, a sort of wonderful richness of work that I think he would appreciate. Albert was also very receptive to new emerging areas of work. I mean, mm-hmm. he was an early supporter of gender history and mm-hmm. looking, you know, he supervised Margot Badran's thesis on Egyptian feminism, which is one of, one of the first really serious works to be done. Um, and, and he was very supportive of that. So I think he would also be pleased to see the way that um, areas such as gender history and mm. historical translation studies, something mm. else that I work on and I, mm. he was very interested in, um, the way that those have 
Yeah, and trans translation studies and translation are very, very important. Again, if you think back to when Albert was forming this field, what was there that you could give a non-expert to read? Mm -hmm. Almost nothing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and now the range of material available in translation, and you have that whole, oh, what's that magnificent modern, the, the Library of Arabic Literature. The, yeah, the New York University yeah. uh, Library of Arabic Literature, Gosh, I mean, doing it, magnificent work. It's, it, yeah. it's like low ebb used to be for the classics. You know, you mm -hmm. didn't have to be a super sophisticated scholar of Latin and Greek. You could have the whole damn thing on your shelf. Mm -hmm. We're getting much closer to that. Um, and you have to remember thinking about Albert, how little there was to work yes. with when he started this. Paul? Mm -hmm. Yes, as, as Marilyn said, the first thing is just how much stuff there is now mm -hmm. and how varied it is. And I think it's easy for somebody, <laughs> young, young fellows like you, um, <laughs> You know, to not to appreciate just how little there was mm -hmm. and how much could you be sent to read on this and that. There just wasn't much. Mm -hmm. And the things that you would all read now and probably think a bit passe, you know, stop and think most of it's by Albert students. And it's accelerated since then. So there's just a lot of good stuff out there. It's also a lot more sophisticated mm -hmm. than it was. You know, my little patch of anthropology was really pretty poor. I mean, there were half a dozen things worth reading and they weren't all that good. And now people routinely are working with sophisticated texts, they're routinely looking at historical depth, they're dealing with clever linguistics. It's just unrecognisable. So I, I, I think you know, anthropology, history, whatever, Albert would be rather pleased mm -hmm. with what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, there's just so many good books now that you can't keep up with them. Otherwise, what would he think? He would be appalled at what has happened to this institution. That yes. really needs stressing. Yes. Um, you know, he never expressed strong political views explicitly, except on one occasion, I remember, where he said, you know, I don't think I ever knew what hatred was. I, I'm sure I've never hated anybody until Mrs. Thatcher. <laughs> and it was a real exception. And, of course, the reason he hated her was that she had crashed so much of UK academic life, which mm -hmm. he'd given his, his time to. And I think the increasing bureaucratization of the universities, uh, the increasing government control, the whole neoliberal thing, he would have loathed. I agree. Very, very Yes. Deeply. He would have thought it anti-humanist and inhumane. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, my fault. <laughs> <laughs> so going on the topic of great books, mm -hmm. the last thing we like to ask all of our podcast guests is, mm -hmm. um, what is your favorite book or author on the Middle East? And oh. <laughs> what would you, yeah, what would you recommend to our, um, to our listeners? I know it's, especially for students of Albert, who he probably gave you so many people that you appreciate and um, just in your own careers, people you've come across, <laughs> but maybe not your favorite, but just one that sticks out in your mind that you can, this would be oh, good for people. <clears throat> oh, goodness. I'm not quite prepared for that question. <laughs> um, hmm. oh, a book to... I, I would sort of refuse to answer for the reason that Marilyn's just touched on. This is a hugely, very diverse, rich field. Mm -hmm. To say, well, you know, my favourite book on the Middle East, yeah. it depends what you're interested in. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> to, give you, to give this answer credit that you're giving, when Eugene Rogan was interviewed mm -hmm. the first time, mm -hmm. he went through all of Albert's books right. and then a few, about probably I think three or four more books that he liked on top of those. Right. So he's well, given, <laughs> he I, also couldn't pick one book, one author. Well, I, I would absolutely <laughs> resist doing it. 
it depends what you're interested in. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> now, there are certainly books I liked very much um, which were not noticed. And we'll all have lists of those, things that really are first rate and, and nobody ever gave credit to. I would stress much more reading outside the Middle East. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think we've mentioned, haven't we, that Albert was a sophisticated, cultivated, widely read person. <clears throat> And it rather depends what you're doing. So, you know, I had my little problems trying to get my head around aspects of Yemeni tribalism. What sparked off some useful thinking? Pollock and Maitland on Anglo-Saxon England. It's got nothing to do with it. Mm -hmm. But it's oh, that's good. Um, And if we're allowed to mention somebody, my very last research student, so however many generations down from Upward, Mary uh, Mary Montgomery. Lovely book on um, domestic labour in Morocco. That sat up and worked when she felt able to admit to herself <clears throat> that there was an awful lot here you had seen in Jane Austen, Flora Thompson, <laughs> Mrs. Castle. Yeah. At that point, ah. So we all slog along, you know, we try to master enough of the languages involved, we read all the local sources, we're all terribly conscientious. But to make it sit up and work, you have to read outside the You do, and I think that's one my one <clears throat> one of my problems with mentioning something. I've been reading mostly comparatively, and especially mm-hmm. I'm going back to French scholarship these yep. days, and a lot of it doesn't have anything um, direct to do with the Middle East, mm-hmm. but it's it's very relevant to what I do and yep. to the to the way that I'm thinking. <clears throat> Any concluding thoughts from either of you? It's okay if there's not. Anything that you thought about for that that you want to add before we conclude? Well, it's a pity we don't have Walter here. He's a great friend of both of us, <laughs> and I suppose he's third generation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So we're all over the place. Yeah. <clears throat> well, thank you very much. I guess, oh, uh, God, yeah, I guess the, the other thing I would say, which maybe I should have said earlier, was that um, it's also important, I think, to remember that Albert and Odile were a team. Oh, and, yeah. you know, oh. Odile was a very, very important part of any student's um, life. She was incredibly um, generous. And so both in terms of inviting people over, but just being a part of the center mm-hmm. and um, the two of them together were just amazing. Um, and, and talk about sort of networking and remembering people and who's related to whom. I mean, you get the two of them going and it would be amazing. So I think she, you know, she really also deserves mention as a part of that, the Middle East studies, Middle East Center. um, And she she ran a wonderful lifelong joke, really, pretending to have no idea at all. (laughs) (laughs) Syria, is that to the left of Iraq or to the right? (laughs) Quite extraordinary. Um, Presumably she knew an awful lot, but it it, it was a good double act. Well, Marilyn Booth, Paul Dresch, thank you so much for joining us on Almanac. Thank Thank you. And now we talk to Eugene Rodigan, who, for technical reasons, couldn't complete the interview with Paul and Marilyn. How has Albert um, impacted your teaching and your scholarship? Well, Albert casts a really big shadow over the Middle East Center generally. And I think he was responsible for creating a culture that made Oxford Middle Eastern studies very distinct. And if I were to sort of summarize it, it was something to do with a level of engagement with the region and a kind of sympathetic commitment. So all of Albert's students went out to the region, learned the languages, studied it firsthand, learned from scholars and practitioners in the region. You know, if you were an Albert student, you went to Damascus, you got to know everybody. 
you know, all the faculty, people in government, people in the press, and Lebanon, Egypt, Morocco, Algeria, wherever you went, that was the approach you took. So, you, you, you know, Oxford never succumbed to that know thy enemy approach to the Middle Eastern studies. We were never interested in the study of terrorists. We were always uh, interested in what ideologies drove the region rather than what were the ideologies that were a threat to the West. And, you know, I used to joke and say, if that's the approach you want to take, you go to Princeton. (laughs) That's the Vernon Lewis School. Uh, But the Hulani School is all about this sympathetic engagement and uh, approaching the region through its own language and culture. And in that, I feel like that formula turned out some of the best scholarship. Certainly when I was a graduate student at Harvard, that's what I read. Mm -hmm. So reading... Eric Hopwood and Roger Owen and Robert Mabro and Mustafa Badawi, not to mention Albert himself. You know, if that's your role model, then that's something to preserve. And I really feel that now that we're coming into like the third generation of Middle East Center fellows, that there's still that commitment to approach the region in that way and this sort of very strong positive commitment to the region we work on. We like the place we work on, you know, and uh, I trace that right back to Albert. Um, I found in my when I was doing my research for this, um, I found a mention. I think it was in Roger Owen's introduction to Arabic thought beyond the liberal age. Mm-hmm. There was a mention of um, some of Albert's work in Palestine just after the war, when he was associated with the Arab office in Jerusalem. I wonder if you could shed any more light on that. If you knew much about it. You know, I only have kind of vignettes about that. I know that Albert had teamed up with Musa Halami to try and make the case, particularly to the Anglo-American Committee, for Palestinian national rights against what was a growing tide of support in favor of Jewish rights in Palestine. And to Albert, this was a false relativism. And there was an absolute case for Palestinian national claims and that these were being ignored out of the very legitimate concern for Jewish interests and rights in the aftermath of the Holocaust. But he felt that Palestinian interests were falling out in the process. The thing that Albert said to me was that he felt that he was very ineffectual at engaging politically. I think it was something that he and Alami went into feeling like the argument was theirs to lose and they lost. And I think he came away from that bruised and felt that he would retire from any political engagement to try and make his contribution through scholarship and through training the next generation of people who would then go and try and tackle the political issues of the day. But there is quite a lot of documentation in the UK National Archives from that period of negotiating the future of Palestine at the end of the mandate, you'll find a lot of papers and reports either by Albert or referencing him. And I, I don't think it's been fully done yet, and I would, I would love to see someone do that. On the podcast, we always ask, what's your favorite book? But you've done that question already, so why don't you tell us a little bit about the new book coming out? Oh, and the new book is so Albertine. <laughs> so it kind of fits in well here. While I was doing my doctoral research, I went to the American archives. Everywhere I'd been to the British and French archives, if you wanted to approach Transjordan, you did so either through 
consular reports from Damascus or from Jerusalem. And America had consuls in both places. They started in the 1850s in Jerusalem, appointed an American as consul general there, and they hired in Damascus a local intellectual, a very famous local intellectual named Mikhail Mishaka. And Mishaka is best known to historians for the history of Lebanon and Syria in the 19, 18th and 19th century, which he called in Arabic in Jawab al-Iqtirah al-Ahbab, or the response to the suggestion of the beloved, but which in Wheeler Thaxton's translation became murder, mayhem, pillage, and plunder. <laughs> and it's a really great primary source for that period. And this was the man that America hired to be their first consular or vice consul in Damascus in 1859. The following year, Damascus succumbs to a massive genocidal moment where a Muslim mob tries to exterminate the Christian community of Damascus. And so Mishaka was an eyewitness to the before, the during, and the after. The Damascus massacre has been very well studied by all the great historians of Albert's generation, and a lot of the texts from that era were published around that time. But I'm actually more interested in looking at the process of reconstruction and reintegration, because what's so interesting to me is how Damascus came through that dreadful experience, driven to the brink of genocide, you know, if they could have, the mob would have killed all the Christian men. In the event, interventions by people like the Emir Abdul Qadir from Algeria, who was in exile in Damascus, with a large group of armed men, was able to save about 85% of the Christian community. So you, you had a genocidal moment, but not a genocide. Mm -hmm. But how do you get the Christians to come back to the city and live among those neighbors that so recently had tried to murder them and rebuild their houses? and relaunch the project of Damascus in a way that's not a zero-sum game, but where benefits are distributed to all communities so that you could rebuild and reintegrate without a sectarian legacy. And so to me, it's almost the aftermath, which is the more important part of the story. And I think that's where I'll be able to add something from the sources I found, these very rich reports that Mishaka was filing weekly to Beirut on the conditions of Damascus, supplemented by some wonderful uh, manuscript sources uh, in Arabic by various Muslims who lived through the same period. And then, of course, all the published manuscripts that, you know, have been part of the literature on this for, um, you know, it's a half century or more. So very rich material, very interesting topics. And as I said, one which was very, very dear to Albert's own heart and very much at the heart of his kind of uh, urban notables and Arab nationalism sort of approach, the politics of notables. So hope to have a manuscript done by the end of the summer and uh, as I return in the autumn to full-time teaching duties that we can put that one into production. Wonderful. Yeah. Do you have anything else, Charlie? No, I think that's it. All right. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure, guys. Um,